the height of the Abbasid Empire. The Caliph was the most powerful person on earth. He ruled over the largest land empire, amassed vast fortunes of wealth, built monumental architecture, commissioned works of literature and science that would shape history to come. But all glory is fleeting, and powerful Caliphs were to be the exception rather than the rule. Scarcely a hundred years after the founding of Baghdad, the power of the Caliph may have peaked, but the decline was to be a long, slow process. And some of the greatest achievements of Muslim civilization would come during that long period of decline, rather than at the peak of the Golden Age. And so, for better or worse, today we begin to look at the period of decline from what seemed like the most secure peak of power. So please, stay with us. In a recent episode, we talked about the Caliph al-Ma'mun, who certainly ranks as one of the most and perhaps the most powerful and influential of all Caliphs. Although the fifth Abbasid Caliph, Harun al-Rashid, is the best known in the West, and his name is often associated with the Golden Age of Islam, most scholars agree that the Caliphate really peaked under his son, the seventh Caliph, al-Ma'mun. As we discussed, al-Ma'mun provided great support for the sciences and the arts. He consolidated his power over his rivals by means of his corps of Turkish warriors, and he zealously promoted the rationalism of the Mutazilites against religious traditionalists. In doing so, Ma'mun enforced a doctrine that said that he, as the commander of the faithful, was the ultimate judge of religious matters, not the religious scholars or the ulama. Well, it sounds like al-Ma'mun certainly had a solid grip on all aspects of power, political, military, even religious power. Now, just to give you a sense of the time frame we're talking about here, remember the Prophet Muhammad died in 632 AD. There are about 30 years of what we call the rightly guided or the Rashidun Caliphs, but the Umayyad Caliphate, the largest empire in the world at the time, would be established in 661. The Umayyads lasted just under a century, when they were overthrown by the Abbasids in 750. So here we are, just about 120 years after the time of the Prophet. El Ma'mun rules from 813 to 833, which is almost exactly two centuries after the Prophet, one year extra. The last Abbasid Caliph with any real power, whom we're going to talk about in just a moment, dies in 861. So when we put this all together, we have an Umayyad Caliphate, which lasts for about a century, followed by a strong Abbasid Caliphate, for the most part, which lasts for about a century. And then we get this long period of decline, where we'll see the Turkish military really comes to dominate. And so, really, we have a period of about two and a quarter centuries when we're really talking about a strong, centralized Muslim empire. After this, though, Muslim dynasties of various ethnic backgrounds and languages will rise and fall, and they'll dominate much of the world, particularly from North Africa to Central Asia, 
But when we last left off, this might not have seemed like where we were headed. It might have seemed like centralized power had finally been consolidated under al-Ma'mun. So let's take a moment and look at what actually happens. Al-Ma'mun was riding high as probably the greatest and most powerful Abbasid Caliph. He had a firm grasp on the reins of power, had dispatched his enemies, was knocking on Byzantium's door, and had loyal brothers and sons ready to take his place. So what happened to all of this? Well, after 20 years in power, El-Ma'mun died suddenly while on an expedition into modern-day Turkey. It's thought he may have eaten some bad fruit, and that's what killed him. In any case, also on the expedition with him was his half-brother, who would later be known by the title Mu'tasim. Remember, all these Abbasid caliphs take on titles to mark their reign. Well, al-Mu'tasim was a special person in the caliphate. He was the commander of the Turkish guard. And we talked about how much al-Ma'mun relied upon his Turkish military and how they had really come to dominate politics after a while. Well, Mu'tasim was the guy who was in charge of the Turkish military. Although Ma'mun had a son named al-Abbas, he never left instructions for the succession to the power. Well, according to the official story, as al-Ma'mun lay dying, he appointed his half-brother, al-Mu'tasim, as his successor. When he heard of this, al-Abbas, the son, pledged allegiance to the new caliph, and power was transitioned fairly smoothly. Well, what actually happened off there on the way to Turkey, we may never actually know. But clearly, al-Mu'tasim had the military power. His Turkish lieutenants definitely wanted their guy to become the caliph. And so Abbas's position was very weak anyway. He hadn't been de- designated the successor. Nobody had. Al-Mu'tasim was with al-Ma'mun when he died, so no one could really dispute the claim. And significantly, all future caliphs would be descendants of al-Mu'tasim. So there was a definite interest in making his claim sound legit, because that would make all his successors a little bit more legitimate. Well, this doesn't mean everything went smoothly. Al-Ma'mun had depended on his Turkish military to hold power against his rivals, who were the largely Persian and Arab elites who had previously dominated Baghdad. Now, if you remember, Ma'mun had defeated his brother Amin in a civil war, in which Amin was backed by those traditional elites. Of course, we know the story that the Turkish military is going to come to dominate things, but they didn't know this at the time. This seemed like a temporary thing. Well, Al-Mu'tasim was even more dependent upon the Turks than Ma'mun was. He was their actual commander, and they were his sole base of power. To say that those Turks were unpopular in Baghdad would be an understatement. For one, they didn't speak the language there. Most were recent converts to Islam, if that. A lot of them hadn't converted at all. And mostly were of slave origin. 
Mahmoud had allied whole tribes of Turkish fighters from Central Asia with him during the Civil War, but the permanent guard came from slave origins. And this is a subject we're going to see repeated over and over again. Uh, the Muslim world was going to rely on Turkish slaves for its military for centuries to come. Now, the actual slave status here is something that's a subject of great controversy among historians. And the exact nature of this slavery differed from generation to generation, and it differed based on how powerful the warrior was. But originally the idea was these were either bought in slave markets, which were very common throughout the empire, or they were imported directly from Central Asia. The idea was to get warriors who didn't have any other loyalties or lineages, of course, and to pick the strongest physical specimens, train them up from a very early age so they would be loyal to their commanders. After that, they were either given freedom or some of them technically kept their slave status to the ruler, but usually they didn't end up being paid very well and could accumulate power. I mean, eventually they would command units, cities, they would become governors of provinces and eventually dominate the entire empire. So it's a, it's a different kind of slavery that we have here. But in any case, the elites of Baghdad who had lineages to important Arab tribes and who up to this point had come to be custom of being in power they considered these newcomers to be repulsive. I mean, they were like barbarians who were brought in from the, the distant regions. And of course, as these were primarily nomadic warriors we're talking about, who were trained basically just to fight and to sack, they tended to cause a lot of damage in the city when they weren't given something to do. Well, under al-Mutasim, things would swing even further towards the Turkish military. So to avoid conflicts within the city of Baghdad, Mutasim built a new capital, the city of Samarra, which is located about 80 miles north of Baghdad in Iraq. Now, unlike Baghdad, there was nothing here before the capital. So this would become the home of the Khalif and his Turkish guard, and everything else would stay back down in Baghdad. Now, a lot of historians, they like to draw a parallel here to Louis XIV, building his grand palace at Versailles, basically because he wanted to get away from Paris and all the intrigues and politics that were there. So it's kind of a similar thing. Well, 60 years and eight caliphs later, the capital would move back to Baghdad and Samarra would be abandoned, and actually it's still ruins today. But this was a way for al-Mutasim to solidify his power and shut out the people who opposed him. But it's also a way for the Turkish military to isolate the caliph. And they did this certainly with al-Mutasim, but even more so with the caliphs that followed him, his sons, who would be raised in this place. They were to become totally dependent and isolated on these uh, Turkish military. Well, Mutasim was a military leader through and through. That's really the only thing that he had ever done. Unlike Mahmoud, he cared very little about intellectual matters, but he still let these go on. And particularly with the government now outside of town, Baghdad continued to flourish as a center of scholarship. There were still the elites there, there were still all the scientific institutions, there were the poets and the storytellers. And so some of the greatest intellectuals of the Golden Age came about at this time when Baghdad wasn't even the capital. 
Uh, for example, someone we have talked about before, the first great Arab philosopher, Al-Kindi, was alive at this time, and this is when he wrote. I mean, he even dedicated some of his works to the, the caliph who was away in Samarra. As well as Al-Jahiz, someone who is generally regarded as the master of classical Arabic prose writing. Poets, of course, were of tremendous importance, but he's generally considered the, the master of prose, and some of his great works, like Al-Bukhala, The Misers, and Kitab al-Haywan, The Book of the Animals, are some of the, the greatest written works from the classical period. Well, he was writing in Baghdad at this time when the caliph wasn't particularly interested. But the most important people in El-Mutassam's government were definitely his Turkish generals. But they, like him, focused on military matters and keeping order. So this actually meant a number of other officials who were not Turks and who were not military were able to exert tremendous influence in things that the Turks weren't particularly interested in, particularly in science and in religion. Now, in the area of religion, the most important figure was the chief qadi, or judge, and this was a man named Ahmed ibn Abi Daoud. Ibn Abi Daoud was, like the Khalif al-Ma'mun, a strong supporter of Mu'tazilism, which we've talked a lot about in the past. And just to remind you, the, this was basically the theology based heavily on Greek rationalism that believed that human reason could reveal all the truths of the world and which was certainly in favor with the scientists and scholars, and was the official theology of al-Ma'mun. Remember, he launched the, the mihna, essentially the inquisition, to make sure that everyone agreed with him. Well, al-Mutassim wasn't really interested in this one way or the other, so he just allowed the pattern that his predecessor had established to keep going. He kept uh, Ibn Abi Daud in power. And so the Mehna, that Inquisition, continued. In fact, Ibn Abi Daud, who was a strong Mutazilite, locked up his opponents. They were the traditionalist Sunnites. And particularly, he went after Ahmed Ibn Hanbal. If you remember, was the founder of the Hanbali school, the very conservative school of Sunni jurisprudence. In fact, Ibn Abi Daud's power would continue under al-Mutasim's successor. And so would the persecution of these traditionalists. But as we know, this is eventually going to fail. Hanbali conservatism will become the dominant force. So because of this, the later history tends to paint Ibn Abi Daud as, a, as an evil manipulator, as a bad guy. Well, he may or may not have been. He's certainly not as bad as they make him out to be. But because his side, his theology eventually lost out, he is painted that way in the um, historical memory. But Ibn Abi Daud was not the only powerful one in the caliphate at this time. His main rival for influence was the vizier, and the vizier is like a prime minister, the uh, chief administrative officer, a man named Muhammad Ibn al-Zayat, who we're going to talk about a little bit later. Al-Mutassam's reign marks the high point of Abbasid power. I mean, the caliph was still generally in charge. He consolidated more authority at the top than any of his predecessors. 
he got rid of many of the governors he didn't like with his own Turkish generals, who, of course, reported directly to him, and they collected taxes directly for him. With such military power, he was able to crush several of the rebellious sects out there, like the Kharijites, and he was able to bring regions that had become semi-autonomous, like northern Iran in Egypt, back under his direct control. But his most famous campaign was definitely against the Byzantine Empire. El Ma'mun had started the campaigns, and he had captured a good deal of Byzantine territory. Remember, that's where he was when he died. But, as always happens, the Byzantine emperor, in this case Theophilus, took advantage of al-Ma'mun's death and the subsequent rebellions that broke out, and he launched a very destructive campaign into what is now eastern Turkey, which had been under uh, Muslim control. In any case, al-Mutasim came back strong. It didn't take him long to consolidate his power, and since he had this Turkish military that had to be kept busy, and he wanted to prove himself to them, he went out and fought back against the Byzantines. Well, he defeated them, he refused their offers of peace, and he even at one point made plans to capture Constantinople. Well, like his predecessors, his attempt failed when his fleet was sunk in a storm. But nevertheless, Motassem exploited these victories for propaganda purposes. And so at the time, he was celebrated as a great Muslim warrior. This fit in very well with what he wanted to be, and this pleased his military power base. Well, it seems at this point, like the caliph is still going pretty strong. Well, what happens though is El Motassem, he lasts only eight years in power before he dies. But he had accomplished a great deal in terms of cementing power. He passed the caliphate on to his son, El Wathik. And significantly, if you remember, Motassem was the brother of El Ma'mun. Remember, El Ma'mun had a son, Abbas. Well, Motassem takes over, and when he dies, he designates his son as the successor and all the future caliphs will be from his lineage. So basically, the rest of the lineage under El Ma'mun is going to be shut out really forever. But just to solidify things, El Ma'mun's son Abbas died in very shady circumstances. We don't know exactly what happened, but he was the only real contender to the throne, and he conveniently died under mysterious conditions. So, by this time, although Motassem had died after merely eight years, he had built a new capital, he had marginalized his opponents, he had surrounded himself with military power, he had thrashed his enemies, and he had eliminated all the rivals to the caliphate. Sounds like things were going pretty well for him. But as is often the case, it's the very source of his power that would be the seeds of the downfall of his dynasty. About his son, El Wathik, if there's one thing that historians can all agree upon about El Wathik is that we know very little about him. If you look up anything about him, you'll find out that he's the caliph we know the least about. He only lasted five years, 
and his reign seems to be a continuation of his father's policies. But still, this was at a time when the caliph was pretty strong. You would think we would know something about him. But what we really see here is that the people around him, who were very strong, very well entrenched, they kept policies going that they wanted to go. And so al Wathik, he sort of becomes like a, a puppet almost in their hands. Well, the Mithna, that is the Inquisition, continues. The Turkish commanders continue to grow in power. And some opposition does come from the earlier Abbasid leaders, the traditional Arab elites. But they are put down in in several uh, attempted rebellions. There's a revolt of the Bedouin. There's an attempt at an assassination against Al-Wathik. But the, the Turks have a strong control on power, and they're able to stop all of these. It turns out Al-Wathik died of basically natural causes in the sense that it doesn't seem that anyone assassinated him. Now, it was a strange thing. He was sick, and as a treatment for his illness, he was prescribed was to go into an oven, and that actually killed him. But it doesn't appear to be a, an assassination attempt, and why would it? He seemed to be very amenable to everything that the elites in the empire wanted to do. Well, he was succeeded by his half-brother, Al-Mutawakal who is probably the last important caliph that we're going to mention. Now, he certainly has to be the most interesting caliph after al-Ma'mun. And he would really be the last one to try and assert his own authority, keep the, the Turkish military under control. Well, a little bit of a spoiler alert, uh, they're going to assassinate him because they don't like that. But once that happens, really, from then on, future caliphs are going to become sort of putty in the hands of the Turkish elite. Nonetheless, though, despite his demise, El Mutawakal does last 14 years in power, and he does make some significant changes before he eventually falls. But first, before we get to any of that, the story of how he gets to the throne is actually interesting and worth retelling. So, if you remember, a few minutes ago we mentioned the entourage of powerful officials behind the caliph, and specifically the vizier, one Muhammad ibn al-Zayat. Now, he was known to be a really nasty, conniving character. I mean, he certainly uh, fit the stereotype of the evil vizier that you see on a cartoon like Aladdin. Well, anyway, Al-Zayat was one of those guys who abused too many people and it was bound to come back and hurt him, which was a big mistake. So one of the few anecdotes that we actually have about Al-Wathik involves Al-Mutawakal coming to power. And so the story goes, Al-Wathik is the caliph at this time. Mutawakal is his half-brother. Now, you would think the half-brother of the caliph has a pretty good chance of coming into the caliphate himself. He's certainly going to be a major contender for the job. He's going to be one of the top two or three people who might be considered. You would think common sense would tell you this is not a person that you want to mess with. And it doesn't appear that El Motawakal really tried to pick fights with people. But El-Zayat was such a nasty person and abused his power so much that even he would go after somebody as important as the half-brother of the caliph. So the most famous incident involving these two people uh, occurs during the caliphate of El-Wathik. Uh, apparently, 
Uh, when his brother, half-brother, was caliph, El-Mutawakal went to the palace trying to get help. Now, El-Zayat, of course, he controls access to the caliph. He's the vizier. And again, he's a really nasty fellow. So he didn't like the way El-Mutawakal was dressed. In his opinion, he thought that El-Mutawakal was dressed in an effeminate manner and he didn't like his long hair. So he made El-Mutawakal stand around while everyone uh, listened to him being publicly insulted, then he sent them away. Never let them get in to see the caliph. But not only that, he reported his objectionable appearance to the caliph, who ordered El-Mutawakal's long hair to be cut off and for him to be slapped in the face with it by El-Zayat. Now, when we say that El-Wathik ordered this, it really sounds like El-Zayat came in and said, hey, this is what I want to do. You authorize it. Well, Al-Mutawakal is reported to say that he had never been so upset in his life. Well, this little incident shows a few things. Number one, it shows the power that the court officials had around the caliph. And in fact, probably El-Zayat really considers himself even more powerful than the caliph himself. And it also shows that Muslim tradition didn't have a standard policy for whom became the ruler when the old one died. As we talked about, this was always a process of decision of who was going to get it. Well, in Europe, you know, you have a crown prince. Everyone knows the oldest son of the king is supposed to take over. And whether you like him or not, uh, that's not someone you want to mess with because, you know, eventually that person's probably going to become king. Well, in the Abbasid court, you really didn't know who was going to take over. And apparently, someone like El-Zayat thought he had enough influence that he could prevent someone he didn't like from getting the job. When El-Wathik died, the senior officials, including El-Zayat, gathered to choose his successor. We know for a fact that Muhammad ibn al-Zayat didn't want al-Mutawakal. For one thing, he thought he was a, a wimp, he was effeminate. He wanted al wathiqs son to take over. But somehow during the discussions, they ended up agreeing on al-Mutawakal. It's one of these things where the generals and al-Zayat couldn't agree on which candidate they wanted, so they picked him. And apparently the reason they picked him was because El-Zayat remembered how bullied and harassed El-Mutawakal and the fact that he considered him effeminate. And this, he figured, set the tone for their relationship. They figured that this would be an easy guy to push around. Well, it made a lasting impression, all right, but not the one he thought. Among his first acts after becoming Khalif, Al-Mutawakal had El-Zayat summoned to him, he imprisoned him, and tortured him to death. It shows you the difference. This was an incident that had scarred Al-Mutawakal so bad that he wanted revenge. But apparently Al-Zayat was, was okay with him coming to the job because he figured that he, as an official, had so much power that no one could dare mess with him. Well, he learned the hard way. And, of course, no one felt bad for him. But he would not be the last one. The leading Turkish general, Itach, who in fact was the one who arrested and killed El-Zayat on the caliph's orders, he would rise to the highest positions of power. In fact, he would hold all of the top military and civilian posts at once. 
he was not only commander of the the army but the the chief minister and he was head of the postal service now the reason that's important is the postal service functioned mostly as an intelligence network a spy network but when al mutawakkil began to suspect Itak of skimming money he had him arrested supposedly a million gold dinars were found in his house here we're not talking like today about someone who has a million dollars on a spreadsheet in a, in a bank account somewhere he had a million physical gold coins in his house well as powerful as he was and the fact that he held all the important administrative jobs in the caliphate uh, didn't save his life. El Mutawakal had him put to death. And one of his favorite execution techniques was to let someone die of thirst in prison, which is a pretty cruel way uh, to kill someone. So here we have Al Mutawakal, and he's definitely his own man in all regards. Uh, he is not afraid to stand up to the people with power. And in fact, he, he goes after them publicly. And so the dreaded Mehna, which was the Inquisition, again, in which the traditionalists were punished and Mutazilism was enforced and had become really the province of the chief Qadi, Ibn Abi Daud, and it lasted for three caliphs, was ended. Al-Mutawakal didn't agree with it and that's not the direction he wanted to go and he had the power to end that. So Ibn Hanbal, who survived it, becomes a hero. In Hanbalism, which as we said was the strictest of the four schools of Sunni law now becomes the leading one. It had been by far the smallest. It may have died out on its own, but the the sense of martyrdom, not in the sense that he died, but the sense that he suffered for this, really elevated the study of Ibn Hanbal and the emulation of him. And so now this becomes the most powerful school of law. The rationalist mutazilism, which we have talked about so much, would never recover from this blow. And in fact, in, in a short while, it's going to become a, a heresy. But it's definitely never going to come back to where it was. And so this, again, speaks to the independence of El Motawakal. Uh, before, Motazilism was, was enforced with prison and torture. Now here's a guy who decides, no, I don't want that theology, and it's essentially going to die out. But his religious zeal went even further than this. Uh, the Shia, who, if you remember, they've been enjoying on-again, off-again relations with the Caliphate. I mean, they were definitely enemies of the Umayyads, but the Abbasids used them when they needed them, and then sometimes they didn't. Remember, al-Ma'mun made a particular effort to try and reconcile with the Shia. This is not the direction that Al-Mutawakal wanted to go. He had the Shiite Imam placed under arrest, and I mean, to the Shiites, this is a person, really a holy person. Okay, and it would be actually his successor that executed him, but Al-Mutawakal had set the die, and it was definitely going to happen. Even beyond this, the shrine of Imam Hussein in Karbala, which is one of the holiest spots even today for the Shiites. This marks the Battle of Karbala and the place where Ali's son Hussein was martyred. That shrine in Iraq was destroyed. So, despite Mahmoud's attempt at a great reconciliation, uh, this was really the breaking point. The relations between the Sunni and Shia, which had been up and down, would never recover. But this really does fit in well with 
what Mutawakal is doing. Now with strict Sunni Hanbalism becoming the main school of law, he's going to crack down on all the other sets of belief. And that means he goes after the non-Muslim minorities as well. Remember, we've talked about people of the book, Jews and the Christians. They had done fairly well under previous caliphs. At some points, they had uh, prospered. At other points, things were a little bit more difficult. But al-Mutawakal clamped down on them more than anyone before him. He kept most of them out of the government. He actually destroyed churches and temples. And the thing that is really remembered about him is that he required Jews and Christians to wear distinctive markings on their garments to be distinguished from Muslims. And of course, historians constantly make a parallel between this and what the Nazis did. Al-Mutawakal didn't go anywhere close to what the Nazis did, but the symbolism of it is something that still resonates. Now, other religions, like the Zoroastrians, they fared even worse. Uh, the, the holy tree of the Zoroastrians was destroyed, their temples were destroyed, and they were really persecuted. Well, during his 14-year reign, Al-Mutawakal also continued the military campaigns against the Byzantines, and in fact, he captured the island of Sicily, in the middle of the Mediterranean, which Muslims would rule over for 200 years. And this is very significant because Sicily becomes one of the important centers for transmission of knowledge from the Arabs to Europe. Sicily is a particularly important center for this transfer uh, because in later years, some of the Holy Roman emperors who rule over this area, particularly Roger II of Sicily, are very much interested in Arab knowledge. And that's one of the things he gets in trouble with the Pope for, is his love of Arab knowledge. He's called a, a little Arab for that. So this is a very important conquest that happened during the time of El Motawakal. Al-Mutawakal was also a great builder, and his most famous construction was the Great Mosque of Samara, which at the time was the largest mosque in the world. You've probably seen its famous minaret, which still remains, and it's a spiral cone shape with a spiral staircase on the outside, and it's a very common picture shown of Iraq because it is now a ruin. Well, this is a lot of stuff that one guy did in a 14-year reign, considering that his predecessor was largely a puppet. But, of course, you can't keep pushing your luck forever. El-Mutawakal continued to consolidate his power and squash his rivals, and he certainly had faith in the idea of the absolute power of the caliph. Remember, he didn't think he was the last one before a great decline. He thought he was bringing everything back to the way it was under El-Ma'mun. But of course, his Turkish generals were very concerned, and they talked a lot behind the scenes. So when he ordered one of them, Wasif, to be arrested and to have his wealth confiscated, the junta decided to act. Not just because they loved him so much, but they figured the rest of them could be, and probably would be, next. So they were very concerned about the succession to the throne. Al-Mutawakal's son, Al-Muntasar, was the designated successor, and this suited the Turks very well. He had a younger son, Al-Mu'taz, who was much closer to the traditional Abbasid and Arab elites. Well, 
Al-Muntasir had been designated the successor, but as they watched over time, Al-Mutawakal was becoming much closer and much more favorable to his younger son, Al-Mu'taz. So there was a very real possibility that he would go ahead and designate him as the successor, and things would swing back to the traditional Arab elites. Now, he wasn't alone in this. Of course, those elites themselves were pushing very hard and manipulating very hard behind the scenes to make sure that this would happen. So with every faction looking to knock off the other factions, they were trying to find a royal figurehead which they could use as a rallying point. They finally decided with the confiscation of al-Wasif's property that this was time to act. So they didn't do things subtly. They burst into the palace they killed the Khalif, and they put al-Muntasir into his place. Well, if this marked the end of the last strong Khalif, it also marked the unquestioned dominance of the Turkish military. And the way they did it, so publicly, leaving no doubt about it, they left no doubt in anybody's mind about the power that they had. Through his successes and failures, El-Mutawakal had set the path for the future of the empire. The Turkish military would run the government and conservative Sunni traditionalism would become the law of the land. But things were going to get a lot worse very soon. The nine-year period following El-Mutawakal's death in 861 is known as the Anarchy in Samara. The Arabic word is fitna. And this is used for times of the greatest chaos in Muslim history. We don't want to go over all the details because they get very convoluted. But there would be four caliphs, none of which had any real power, and all of whom were beholden to the Turkish leaders in Samara. But even those leaders couldn't agree amongst themselves how to run the empire. So the successor to al-Mutawakal lasted only six months, and he most likely was poisoned. His successor escaped to Baghdad with two of his Turkish allies, but the generals followed him and they laid siege to the city. They eventually killed the caliph and they put al-Mutawakal's other son, al-Mu'taz, on the throne back in Samara. Well, al-Mu'taz, like his father before him, attempted to reassert the authority of the caliph, but he had no success. He didn't have the backing and... Most significantly, he didn't have the money to pay the troops, so they killed him as well. Well, with all this going on in Samara and Baghdad, really in this fitna, in this chaos, the rest of the Muslim world was not idle. They saw the distractions as a great opportunity to assert their independence, and they did. Egypt essentially became independent, first under a Turkish leader named Ahmed ibn Talun, who is probably best known today for the great mosque in Cairo that bears his name. But his dynasty wouldn't uh, be around very long. It was replaced by a succession of others. And eventually, an independent Egypt would become the most powerful Muslim state. But it would never really come under Abbasid control. A separate Zaydi Shia state broke off in Central Asia. Much of North Africa came under the control of a Shia group would eventually establish the Fatimid Caliphate, which would go on to be the, the strongest, much stronger than what was left of the Abbasids. And there were revolts throughout the empire, even in Iraq, the homeland. So the control of the Abbasid state over the Muslim world 
was very shaky and very limited. And in reality, it would be that way from here on out. What was left would not be under the control of a caliph, but the people who dominated him. Well, we've talked a lot today, but hopefully the big picture has come clear. Now, we often talk about the 500-year reign of the Abbasid Caliphate and its political, military, cultural, and scientific dominance. In fact, we even do this here on this program. I've said this many times. Now, of course, this is a little bit of a grabber to get your attention, particularly as many people in the West have never even heard of an Islamic empire or have any idea how influential it really is, so it's kind of an eye-opener. But after hearing everything we've really said about the weakness of the caliph and the instability of the caliphate, how valid is this claim? I mean, yes, the Abbasid caliphate technically lasts from 750 to 1250. But as we've already said, by the time we hit the late 800s, uh, they're in rough shape. So is it valid to talk about this great empire as a golden age? Well, like everything else, it depends on exactly what you mean by that. Certainly the idea of a Baghdad-run empire that topped the charts in all categories, well, that was a pretty brief phenomenon. And even when it happened, it was very sporadic. Actual ruling caliphs had a very short span, really from Mansur to al-Ma'mun, maybe throwing in al-Mutawakkal is a brief revival, but even they spent a lot of time just fighting for survival. Now, the amount of time that orders from Baghdad meant anything outside of Iraq or Persia was very limited. But there's a big distinction of whether we're talking internally or externally. The authority of a particular ruler was often very shaky, and the authority of any one government could often be very limited. But if we talk about the Muslim world as a whole, or, as they called it, Dar al-Islam, as opposed to the non-Muslim world, then the permanence and the dominance of that world was pretty solidly established. I mean, places like Egypt may have only sporadically been under Abbasid control. But Egypt was going to stay Muslim permanently. It had been Byzantine Christian before and Pharaonic before that. It had been Roman. But it has been Muslim now for about a millennium and a half. And Abbasids would be replaced by Turks and by Shiites. But these would all fight against Crusaders and the Byzantines, eventually defeating them and keeping this Muslim world as a whole. So we have to bear that in mind. The idea of one caliphate ruling over everything for 500 years is a little bit misleading. But the dominance and permanence of the Muslim world, that's something that stayed. So on another level, when we go back and look at what we said about Islam from the very beginning of this series, and something I'm going to continue to repeat all the time, and that is that Islam means more than one thing. It's a religion, of course. It's also a culture. It's an empire. Right? It's a state. And all of these things have flourished, and their success is certainly interconnected. And there were times when Baghdad was the center of all of these things at once. 
But even if the Abbasid Caliphate did lose its political power, the greatest achievements of Abbasid arts and sciences were still ahead. The greatest intellectuals of the Islamic world haven't even been mentioned yet. Most of them are still to come. The greatest poets of Arabic are still ahead of us. The solidification of religious doctrine is still going on. At this point in the chronology, we still don't have really a Sunni and Shia solidly established yet. And of course, the largest Muslim populations in the world today are in places that haven't even been introduced to Islam at this point in the story. So that's the real significance here. Empires rise and fall throughout history. Some empires lasted longer than the Islamic caliphates. A great many lasted longer than the century of true Abbasid power. The Mongols, for example, lasted longer and conquered much more of the world's surface. Many other empires have been lost to history or exist today just as ruins. Pharaonic Egypt, for example, was one of the world's greatest empires, but it was nearly forgotten by later Egyptians and had to be resurrected and reconstructed by archaeologists several times, in fact. The military and political power of the United Islamic Caliphate may have peaked for just a little over two centuries, but the cultural, scientific, and of course, religious impact is still felt today. It created a Muslim world that still encompasses almost all of the old empire, with the exception of Spain, really, plus a lot of new areas. Centuries of new states, Turkish, Indian, Berber, and yes, even Mongol, would arise out of the original Arab Muslim empire and carry on much of its cultural traditions. You know, the Roman Empire fell, but its culture continues to shape Western society today. Just look at our government buildings and Latin diplomas. The British Empire also declined, not to offend my listeners in the United Kingdom, or of course James Bond, who is not aware of this fact. But the influence of the British Empire throughout the world today is, is still enormous. So the golden age of the Abbasid Caliphate deserves to be ranked in that category of the most influential civilizations in history, I believe even if much of that time the political power was actually figurehead caliphs who were being manipulated by Turkish rulers. Well, thanks for listening. Now, after what we've just discussed today, it may seem like the best days are behind us, but actually the greatest achievements of Islamic civilization are still ahead of us. We haven't even mentioned some of the greatest names in this civilization. And that's where we're headed next. So I hope you'll stay with us. Thank you again for your kind attention. We appreciate your ratings and your comments. And we hope you will listen to us more in the future. So thank you again. Shukran jazilin. Wa ma salama.